Uh, keep your Bibles at John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Very short little section we're going to be looking at today as we wrap up chapter 2. This will be our text for this morning. We have been kind of walking through the book of John for a number of weeks now. I think this is our eighth sermon in the series. We have many, many more to go. I don't know how many more to go, but we have many, many more to go. So I think this is our eighth sermon in the Gospel of John. Last Sunday, we looked at how Jesus, basically at the beginning of his ministry, when he first started his ministry, he did that miracle at Cana and he turned that water to wine. And then from that point, he went to Capernaum for a little bit, just for a few days. And then at that point, he goes to Jerusalem to celebrate his first Passover as kind of the Messiah revealed, right? He'd been to many Passovers before, but this is the first one that he went to as Messiah, as he's already revealing himself to to his people in Israel. And so he's gone to, we learned last week, he's gone to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And when he entered the temple, which would be the religious headquarters and that place of worship for the Jewish people, when he entered it, he discovered that the religious leaders had transformed one particular section, the court of the Gentiles, into a kind of marketplace where they were selling animals for sacrifice and trading out and exchanging money and these things. And and this was highly offensive to Jesus, not because of the commerce or because of the enterprise, but because of where it was taking place. These things had taken place at a different location, and someone got the crazy idea to move it to the temple to make it more convenient for people, and basically they turned this place of prayer and worship into a mall. And Jesus was offended, and Jesus was filled with righteous indignation, and he made a whip, and he just whipped that place clear and rebuked the people who were in charge and doing these things. It was pretty extraordinary. And I ended that sermon with two major points. Number one, that Jesus has authority over our worship. You know, according to the Word of God, it is what instructs us on how to worship God and how to worship the Lord. So we don't get to make this up. We don't get to play it by ear or come up with things along the way. The guidelines for worship are in Scripture. And one of the things that God demands is order. And how can you have orderly worship in a place of worship with a marketplace and people yelling and animals making noises and all these things and coins slapping around. So that was one thing. He has authority over our worship. He determines how we are to do it. We are to worship him in spirit and in truth and in an orderly fashion. And he also has authority over our temples, which are our bodies, because God does not, he no longer resides in temples made by human hands of stone. He resides in his people through the Holy Spirit. So every single Christian is like the temple of the Lord. And so he has mastery and authority over our bodies. Our bodies are to be a place of his presence and worshipful to the Lord. So those are the two kind of driving points that we looked at that we nailed down. And I think it was a pretty convicting message. It was for me during my study time that week. In the next section, verses 23 through 25, this little tiny P of a section. It's just a couple of verses, three verses. John tells us, he's the author, the guy that wrote this gospel. He tells us that uh, about some of the ministry that Jesus was actually doing during this particular visit to uh, Jerusalem, during this Passover. So the next section, John begins to kind of lay out some of the ministry that Jesus was doing. He didn't just go to worship the Father during Passover there and to do what he did or to clear a temple. And he actually went there to perform miracles and to proclaim the gospel and these things. So in the next couple of verses, we see some of the other things that Jesus did besides clearing the temple. He tells us that that Jesus performed many signs. And signs should be interpreted as miracles. A a miracle is a sign of God's deity, God's presence, uh, Jesus' messiahship, the authority of the apostles and those things. That's what miracles are. They're a sign that speak to God. And when the crowds that Jesus was performing all of these signs in front of, he was doing all sorts of things. When the crowds witnessed these miracles, it says in the text that they believed in his name. They believed in his name. Like, like when they saw the miracles, they were like, wow, he's kind of the real deal or whatever. Something triggered and they, they began to believe in his name. But something 
was wrong. Something was off, and Jesus knew it. Jesus knew that something was going on. Something was off. Something was wrong with what was actually taking place before him. I have taken this small little text and divided it into two sections. We're going to be looking at two things today, primarily. I mean, we're going to be looking at a lot of stuff, but we've got two kind of major headings. The first thing we'll look at is the superficial faith of many in verse 23. And I'll talk about what superficial faith is. I'll try to break that down as best I can. And then secondly, we're going to look at the omniscience of the Savior. That would be in verses 24 through 25. Omniscience is a fancy word for all knowledge. It means that Jesus knows all things. How, does, how can he do that? Well, it's God. That's how. So we're going to look at the superficial faith of people that were there involved, and we're going to look at Jesus' omniscience, the omniscience of the Savior. I think it's befitting, though, because it's such a heavy topic. It is. We're going to talk about superficial faith. This is like really, really serious stuff. But I think it'd be befitting that at this point we pray once more before we actually engage in the text, okay? Father, just want to humble myself right now as your servant, Lord. I want to submit to you and, and submit to the Holy Spirit. We have been calling for the Holy Spirit to manifest his presence. This last song we just sang is all about that. I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I want to submit to the Spirit and proclaim the truth in accordance with your truth and proclaim your word. And Lord, I ask that the folks in this room would submit to you as well, that they would place themselves under your teaching and authority just for this moment. I mean, if we're Christians, we need to live that way. There might be some here that aren't, but just help us to submit and to listen and to pay attention, maybe to set aside the cares of the world just for a few moments because we're going to talk about the greatest care of the world right now. We're going to talk about our greatest care, our greatest need. And so help us to listen, Lord. Send the Holy Spirit in power to open hearts and minds to the truth, Lord, especially this guy who's going to be preaching. Help me, Father. We lift up this time for you, to you. We want to honor and glorify you during this moment. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, number one, guys, are you ready? Everyone's good to go? All right, number one, the superficial faith of many. Verse 23 says, Now when he was in Jerusalem, speaking of Jesus, at the Passover feast... Many believed in his name. Why? It was because when they saw the signs that he was doing. Okay, right off the bat, John kind of switches it up, talks about something else Jesus was doing during this Passover feast, and he says he was performing signs, miracles, and people believed in his name because of these signs. I think when Jesus was there, he was... Somewhat well-known at this point, but not as popular as he became a little later. And as he was performing these miracles, crowds began to form, right? I mean, if, if you were a, a devout person and you were at this temple to worship God and you saw someone there who was claiming to be Messiah and preaching the gospel and you saw him actually performing miracles, I think that would get your attention. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be at all like what we see today on TV with people getting knocked to the floor Right, you know, healed the demons out, but when they fall, they get a concussion. It wouldn't have been anything like what you see today, people swinging their shirt or wiping their brow with nasty sweat then letting people purchase the rag. I mean, it's just, there's some weird, crazy, I know that was disgusting. I'm like, here comes breakfast. There, there is some weird, crazy shenanigans going on today that, are, that people are saying this is the power of God and this is God working through people. And I think it's a lot of malarkey. So what you're seeing here are real, tangible, supernatural occurrences. Things happening that you cannot explain because that's a miracle by definition, right? It's something that just cannot be explained by human logic, our rational mind. It's something that just transcends nature. It goes beyond. So I'm thinking this is gaining a lot of attention. He's in the temple courts doing this. He's cleared it. He's working miracles. He's preaching him as, as the only savior to the world. And people are like, whoa, what's going on over here? So people are gathering and rounding up around him. And the disciples are going, whoa, what's going on? I mean, there's a lot of energy and stuff happening here. And it says that some or many in these crowds or in the crowd 
believed in his name. Now, I'll tell you right off the bat, this sounds like a positive thing, right? How many of you have actually read this text in the past? And you look at it and look, look at all these people believing and getting saved and all that. And then you get to the next couple lines, you go, that's kind of weird because Jesus didn't give himself over to them. Why would he do that if they're believing in him, right? That's kind of weird. But it looks like a positive thing. And so often our church services with people showing up and doing stuff, it looks very positive. Well, people are lifting their hands and singing and praising and taking notes. It looks Looks very positive. From my end of the thing, I think it's very positive. God, you're at work in this place. But looks can be deceiving. And so it sounds like a positive thing, but what's actually playing out here is that the faith, the belief, as it's mentioned here, the believing, the belief of these folks was not real. It wasn't real. It wasn't real faith. It wasn't real belief it was superficial it was surface now how would we define superficial faith how would i define it well i think you could talk about it a lot you know i could end it up with a lot of pages and preached for a really really long time uh, and i just didn't do that i'm just going to try to compact it down but i'm going to come at it from multiple angles how would we define superficial faith what is that what can it be i would say right off the bat that superficial faith is a kind of belief in jesus that people conjure up within themselves it's not a a holy spirit triggered given manifestation of god's grace because that's what faith truly is it is something that people conjure up, a type of belief, a type of response that people conjure up within themselves. It is not the result of divine regeneration through the Holy Spirit, which is something that we'll look at in the next chapter. It's not that at all. It really is the result. This superficial faith results from one's own imagination based on temporal desires, temporal meaning earthly. So it's, it's something that is generated within the person based on limited understanding, but it's really being motivated by uh, something other than the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit. I would say that superficial faith is believing in Jesus for purely pragmatic or practical reasons. That'd be a good way to think of it. It's not believing in him because the person actually loves Jesus and, and now knows Jesus and wants Jesus. It's, it's, it's way different than that. It's, it's more like, what can Jesus, not what did Jesus do, what can Jesus do for me? Jesus can help me with this. Jesus can help me with that. Jesus can do this for me. Jesus can do that for me. Jesus is cool, I want to be cool. Or if you're a student, my parents love Jesus, they believe in Jesus, I want to impress them and, and obey what they tell me to do, so I'll believe in Jesus. I had to preach that to junior hires all the time, that this, this whole deal, man, this whole thing that we're talking about needs to be yours, not what your parents want you to do. It's okay for your parents to desire that, but you, you are not going to go to heaven. You are not going to experience new life or any of these things based on their faith. It needs to be between you and Jesus, right? So it kind of has to do with what he can do for me. You know, that's what's going on with the people here. Jesus is my homeboy. I want to be his homeboy. You've seen the t-shirt. I think Cameron mentioned it a few weeks ago. Thank God I never bought that. I'd be regretting it right now. Superficial faith is, is a belief in Jesus that is purely intellectual. It is knowing about Jesus and even agreeing with certain facts, like he was an actual historical person, like he did really, really cool and good things, like he lived a good and upright moral life. You see, that's intellectual knowledge about Jesus. Intellectual uh, uh, superficial faith is purely intellectual in that it is a belief of Jesus or about Jesus or focused on Jesus that 
exists in the mind only and does not impact the whole man or whole woman. Because real faith is a, is a full body, whole souled experience. Superficial just impacts one area of the person, usually the mind and the desires. And then that person seeks out pragmatic things like he can do this for me, he can do that for me, he can, he can fix my problems, he can help me with my marriage, he can help me with my relationships. Really don't care too much about Jesus, but I like what he can do for me. I think this is one of the biggest ones, uh, one of the biggest definitions, and, and I think it's just, yeah, I think it's just, it's it. I think in a nutshell, boil it down to this, superficial faith is a belief in Jesus that is completely devoid of repentance. There is no repentance in the person who has superficial faith. What does repentance mean? Well, you'll hear preachers say all the time it has to do with turning away from sin. It has to do with, oh, he looked at porn, he doesn't. It has to do with all these things. Well, those are all practical implications of repentance. But I don't think the Bible really defines it as just that or those things turning away from bad, turning to good. I don't think that's holistic. I'll tell you what repentance is, and listen very carefully, because this, this is a defining moment. Repentance has to do with taking a posture of submission to Jesus. It means bowing the knee to Him as Lord, realizing that He is the eternal everlasting Lord of the universe. He has all authority, all power, all control. He is righteous. He is holy. You realize all the things about you that don't square with any of that, and you say, wow, I'm a worm. Bow the knee and surrender to his lordship. And then from once that, that kind of repentant submission happens, then you begin to change the way you live. But you've got, to, you've, got to, you've got to enter into this phase or this mode of surrendering to his lordship, taking a posture of submission to him. The superficial believer does not do this and never will. The superficial believer in his life or her life, Jesus does not become the master of their life. They don't assume a position of, of like a slave to their kurios, that's Lord, uh, Greek for master or for Lord, they don't take the kind of slave-master relational kind of component there, and that's exactly what we are, but he's not a terrible slave-master. He's a benevolent, all-loving, all-gracious, like that's the guy you want to submit to because he is the best master ever. But, you know, that, all of that is absent in the superficial person's life. I like what John Murray said. He's a, he's a great theologian. I really just got turned on to some of his writings. But he called repentance the twin sister of faith. Okay? Now, if you think about what I've been saying, if somebody has superficial faith, then that means there is no twin sister named repentance. She probably should get her name changed at this point. Right? There's, it's not there. There's no twin sister. There's no sibling. The superficial faith person doesn't have the repentance component, which quite frankly comes with faith when someone's truly converted. This, of course, means that a truly saved, a truly converted person will be characterized by faith, not superficial, by real faith, that's believing Jesus is Savior and Lord, and they will be accompanied by repentance, that is submission to Him. That doesn't mean that there aren't other things that will be present. There are, but we're talking about this subject right now. And we'll get into those other things in the coming chapter. Faith and repentance will be present in the saved person at the moment of their conversion, the moment they are born again, the moment they become a believer. And not only then, because it's not a once and done deal, for the rest of their lives. They will continue to live a life of believing in Jesus and submitting to him. And I'll tell you what, the believing part's challenging at times because, you know, circumstances and things. The submission part is really, really challenging, is it not? If anyone in here has been a Christian for any length of time, you know how hard it is to bow your knee and your will to the will of the Master consistently. It is very hard. 
He has mastery over these areas of my life, but I've got two I've been hiding from him. Well, nothing's hidden from his sight, as we will learn. But that's a difficult thing. But it is the heart cry. It is the attitude. It is the desire to submit to him. It will be there. It is in the DNA of regeneration. Faith and repentance are there. But in the superficial, it's just a weird belief that's really self-centered. Missing some good stuff. Very important stuff. The Bible gives a lot of examples of superficial faith. And I believe they're there to, they're meant to be a warning to us. And, and the scripture implores us to test ourselves, to see that if we are in the faith very often. But I'll give you a couple of examples of other people that have, uh, that have been all about superficial faith. One would be Judas Iscariot. And you can read about him in the Gospels, primarily in John chapter 12, verses 4 through 6. Is a great story that kind of tells us and informs us about his superficiality. He revealed the superficiality of his faith. And this guy, many of you already know this, but this guy was one of the apostles. This was one of the, one of the I wouldn't call him an apostle because he never went all the way, but he was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. So he was with Jesus for three, three and a half years, doing ministry, attending church, watching the miracles, listening to the sermons, serving the people. He was the treasurer. He was appointed as the guy who held the money bag and protected that and made sure everything was cool with that. This guy... I'll tell you what, and here's the thing that's tricky about him. If you'd have been around him back in those days, you would have never known that he was superficial because he did everything that you do. Like I said, he went to all the services, lifted his hands. He did it all. And he revealed the superficiality of his faith in the Gospels. We see examples of that. Uh, the, The biggest one of all would be the selling out of Jesus. But in this particular text... He revealed it through thievery. He was taking money from the money bag and putting it in his pockets the whole time that he was serving as treasurer. He was sifting, taking money out. and He was tithing to himself. Well, we got in $600 and $60 goes to me. And of course, he was keeping this a total secret. Nobody knew. And like I said, G- Judas went through... All the motions, he had everyone believing he was a legitimate person of faith, except Jesus. Jesus called him a son of perdition way early. Jesus knew exactly who he was. He's omniscient. He knew who his adversary was. He knew how things were going to play out, but he had everyone else fooled. So he was superficial in that he didn't really believe in Jesus He was actually there and going through the motions and keeping people fooled and doing what he could do because he was interested in money, because he was interested in power. He wanted some things from Jesus, but he did not want Jesus. He never exhibited true faith. He never exhibited repentance, the submission. Never experienced life change. None of that was there, and he later hung himself. There's another one in Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 24. Simon the sorcerer. That just sounds like an 80s movie, you know, kind of like somebody holding a sword, right? The sorcerer. What is a sorcerer? Well, it's really back in those days like a magician, someone who performed all sorts of things and wowed and wooed people and made them think that he had supernatural power. This dude lived in Samaria, and when the apostle Philip, he has my name, he's really cool, The Apostle Philip, right, when he preached the gospel in and throughout Samaria and he he performed signs because the apostles were anointed with supernatural power, he was preaching the gospel and performing signs and miracles throughout Samaria. This dude, Simon the sorcerer, believed and took it another step and was baptized. He was baptized. A little later, he revealed the superficiality of his faith when he offered to pay the apostle Peter to anoint him, to lay hands on him and give him a special power. Boy, I see what you apostles can do. I really, really want to be able to do that as well. That's, that's unique. That's awesome. I want that power. And he literally goes to him and says, sell it to me. 
I'll give you some cash. I got plenty. I'm the David Copperfield of my town, right? How many of you are old enough to know who that magician is? How about Chris Angel? Another show of hands? I'm trying to hit every demographic in here. He was that guy in his community. He had plenty of money. He offers an apostle to buy the ability to anoint people with the Holy Spirit. Crazy request. And this guy went all, through all the motions. He was baptized. How many people have gotten a goosebump, decided to get baptized, and then there's just nothing. There. They say they love Jesus. They, they've submitted to him. They get dunked, and it's, they go back to business as usual. I've actually baptized people who have done that. And I feel like guilty. I feel like, what, what have I done here? Well, I, I, I can only take their word for it and watch their life as best I can, but this guy went through all the motions, even got dunked. Everyone was fooled. When he made that request, he revealed the superficiality of his faith. He revealed that what he actually cared about what he actually desired from Jesus, what he actually wanted was to improve his magic skills so he could further wow the crowds and probably make more money. That's what he was after. He's the guy that comes to church not because he loves Jesus, but because he wants something from Jesus. Judas Iscariot's the same way. What did Peter do in response to this banana's request? He totally rebuked him. He told him, you should pray to the Lord. I'm not sure if he'll forgive you for what you've done, but you should pray. That's how infuriated Peter was with him because he had made this insane request, this blasphemous request. He told him, you better repent. And Christian apologists from that era, well, not that era, but shortly after that, like Irenaeus and Justin Martyr, these are old you know, older Christian guys who wrote about these things and recorded some of the history of things that took place after that. Irenaeus and Justin Martyr. He's got your name, Justin. You're pretty cool. Are you going to become a martyr? They tell us that this Simon the Sorcerer dude left the church from this moment on. That's not for me. I'm not getting what I want. Left the church, returned to sorcery, because you know what? That's incompatible with the gospel and became the founder of early Gnosticism, a lethal, deadly heresy that denies the incarnation and humanity of Jesus Christ. Wow. That's what those historians tell us. Is that true? Maybe. You can see the superficiality of his faith. How about this one, which I think is probably one of the most frightening passages in all of Scripture. I call them Lord, Lord believers. Now, that sounds like they love the Lord twice as much as I do. Lord, Lord! That's not what I mean. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Let me describe who these people are. These, these are people who claim to believe in Jesus and even do things in His name, but are actually trying to earn their way to heaven. Okay? So they claim to believe in Jesus and they believe the gospel. They do things in His name. They... They uh, perform deeds and serve the Lord in certain capacities. If you look at the text, it says they did certain things. But they don't believe in the doctrine of justification by faith alone. They're not trusting entirely in Jesus for their salvation. They're trusting in their earning, in their merit, in their works. And they, according to the text, reveal the superficiality of their faith through what? Continuous disobedience to the Father's will. That's what the text says. So they say certain things and they do certain things. If you look at them, if you watch them, you say, that dude's legit. But they are continuously denying the Father's will. How do they disobey? How do they deny His will? They refuse to believe in Christ alone for their salvation and submit to Him as Lord. That's what they refuse to do. You know what? Jesus is great but he's not the only way to heaven. I've got to do some things myself, so I'm going to add to what Jesus has done. That's the mentality. Because of, of this mentality and this attitude and this position of trying to earn their way into heaven and doing these things in the name of Jesus, which I think is highly offensive to Jesus, because of this, Jesus will call them workers of iniquity, 
and command that they depart from his presence on the day of judgment. Those who do not believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ holistically, in that it's all him and not me, they're not going to go to heaven. you you got to put your faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. Don't add to it what you do. Don't add to it your merits or deeds. As soon as you do that, you cancel out the gospel. And there's a lot of people think that out there, well, you know, you can believe that and believe Jesus and still go to heaven. I don't think so. I think God has clearly drawn a line in the sand and said it's all Jesus or it's all nothing. we got to be careful with this because there are denominations in Christianity that are preaching justification by faith and by what you do. And it is not by what you do. What you do will follow true conversion. You will love the Lord and serve Him, and you'll work at it, and you'll submit and do those things. That's part of it. But none of that has to do with you getting salvation. You got salvation, and that's why you do what you do, not so you can get it. Does that make sense? I I tell you what, I'm going to have that on my tombstone. Justification by faith alone. I think everything is hinged on that doctrine. If we get that wrong, we do not go to heaven. We do not get to experience the abundant life that Jesus talked about. It's it's such a critical thing that we understand that Jesus has done something for us that we could never do, and we receive that by faith. And that faith that we exercise is a gift from the Father. That's how we're justified when we believe, not by what we do. What we do are filthy rags. All of the works of righteousness and all that stuff doesn't justify us. It's offensive to the Father. What the Father is seeking in us is faith. And he enables us to believe through regeneration. So people that are out there trying to earn it obviously prove that they've never been converted. And there are multitudes of them, even in the church. Even in the church. Now the folks in our text, our little dinky little passage, they're another example of superficial faith. Here's how I would describe their superficial faith. They were blown away, just blown. I've never seen anything like this. They were blown away by Jesus' miracles and believed in him to a degree, in a sense, but simultaneously disregarded his message and called a repentance. Because you can be assured that wherever Jesus performed signs, he proclaimed the gospel in repentance. He didn't just go perform, we're going to have a miracle campaign and never talk about my work. He never did that. In fact, he preached the gospel, preached repentance, then performed signs to authenticate him as Messiah. They go hand in hand. You're not going to find Jesus performing miracles and doing things without the gospel being tied to it. It's just what he did. And they didn't care about his message. They didn't care about what he was saying. They had no desire to repent, to submit to him. I'm not going to submit to this guy. I, you know, whatever. I mean, he's cool. Look at what he can do. But that's what they were interested in. They believe, what did they believe about Jesus? Their belief is centered on the reality and fact that he performed miracles. And I bet you anything, I guarantee it, they pondered how he could use that power to bless them. Oh, he could, he could give us all of our heart's desires. He could finally liberate us from this Roman occupation. He could do this. He could do that. They were coming at it from pragmatic reasons. Oh, he could do all these wonderful things for us. Look at that display of power. I've never seen that before, Fred. Have you? No, Bill, I've never seen that. <laughs> I try to use names that are not represented in this room. If I slip up and do it, I'm talking about you. I'm not. They were just blown away by the miracles. They pondered how he could use his power for them and to their advantage, but there was no faith. There was no repentance, submission to his lordship. There was no humility among the crowds. There was no brokenness. There was no contrition. There there were no desperate pleas for His mercy and grace. I see the miracles. I hear your word. I'm a worm. Save me. None of that was there. It was, man, I can feel my wallet getting fatter right now. These people, you could put it like this. Superficial people 
And these people in this text, they wanted Jesus on their terms, not on his terms. And guess what? The Lord knew it. He knew it. He knew what they were up to. He knew what was in their hearts. He knew that it wasn't legit. And that moves us to the second section, number two, the omniscience of the Savior, verses 24 through 25. 24 through 25. And it says this, But Jesus on His part did not entrust Himself to them, because He knew all people, there's the omniscience, and needed no one to bear witness about man. And it says, For He Himself knew what was in man. Jesus could see right through these people. And and they didn't know it, man. They, They weren't able to put together the idea that since He can perform all these miracles, maybe He can actually, He really kind of can use that power to know what we're really about. That's what I would have been pondering. Well, if he has that power, he probably knows I'm a fraud, so I'm going to bail. Spare myself. They weren't able to to build the bridge there. He, He knew what they were about. He could see their hearts. He saw right through the the facade. He knew that they were superficial. He knew that they were only attracted to him because of his spectacular signs and had no desire whatsoever to be forgiven, to be saved, to actually believe and follow in Him. He knew that none of that was there. How do I know this? Because I know because Scripture says the Lord will turn no one away who comes to Him in humility, in brokenness, knowing their great need of His mercy and grace. He will never turn anyone away who comes to Him like that. But when they come like this, away from me, I never knew you. In fact, there's a Scripture that's pretty frightening. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father. So what you get the idea here is that if they deny him on the inside, he's denying them right there. You got to understand, folks, Jesus is God. That's part of the, the, the idea here. Remember, part of this gospel is showing and proving the deity of Christ. And the fact that he knows what's in these people, knows what's going on, proves that he's deity, proves that he's God. And, and as God, he's omniscient, which I said is a generic term for all knowledge. He has all knowledge. He knows all things. A great verse that that attests to this is Jeremiah 17, 10. It says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruits of his deeds. He knows, he tests, he sees what's here, he knows what's here. Now, this isn't the first time in John's gospel that Jesus displayed this divine attribute. He did it back in John chapter 1, verses 47 to 48, when he examined Nathanael's heart and then described his character and and some personal information to Nathanael that was only known by Nathanael. He basically told Nathanael about himself. He had never even met him in person. He told him things about Nathanael. And Nathanael was like, how do you know these things about me? Then he realized, oh, it's because you have power to do that. You are Messiah, you know. We see additional examples of Jesus' omniscience in the other Gospels. Here's some great examples of Him seeing through the facades and knowing what's playing out in people's hearts and in their minds. Matthew 12, 25, speaking of Jesus and knowing their thoughts, even says His name, Jesus said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And any city or house divided against itself will not stand. Here's an example of Jesus responding to the thoughts and inclinations of the hearts of those who were before him and him telling them something and revealing what they're pondering in their minds. And they're blown away because he actually knows what's playing out in them. Mark 2, 8, And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves. So these guys aren't even talking to Jesus right now. They're thinking about something about Jesus in their hearts, and he knows what's going on in their hearts, and he says, why do you question these things in your hearts? Wow! This isn't them talking to him. This is them saying, you know, in their minds, like almost telepathic, Jesus is like, like, dude, did you say something? Did I say that out loud? I thought I was thinking. You didn't say anything. How does he know? Oh, Lord. 
He's perceived in his spirit. He knew their thoughts. Luke 16, 15, another great example. And Jesus said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. He's not just saying, well, the father that's way away from here knows. He's speaking of himself. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Here he's issuing a correction. These people were boastful and prideful and want to display religiosity, and he calls them out on it, knows their hearts, and calls them out on it and says, these things, what you're doing and thinking, are detestable before God. Jesus is God. Jesus knows all things. He knows our hearts. He knows what we're thinking and what we're motivated by in all of these things. Because these people were superficial and not really trusting in him, Jesus was unwilling to entrust himself to them. That's what the verse says. Another way to put it, because the word entrust is kind of interesting, I don't think we use it a whole lot in our vocabulary, but another way to put it is Jesus was unwilling to commit himself to them because he had no confidence in them. He knew what they were about. He wasn't about to play their game. Now you must understand that not entrusting himself to them does not mean that Jesus forbid them or denied them from following him. He did not do that. He did not say, I know you're a bunch of superficial people. Take a hike. He didn't do that. A great number of these people went with Jesus after the Passover celebration. But it wasn't long before they began to show their superficiality in sort of a public way. Jesus already knew about it. It wasn't long before they began to interfere with his ministry so you got to know that superficial folks are driven by their own desires. They are driven by their own agenda. Right? It's like they bully God. I'm, I want God to do these things for me. God's going to do this for me. I see that and I hear that in church circles today where people are demanding that God do things for them. Oh, don't you have any doubts about that? You declare that boldly before God and you demand that and you claim that bully Nobody bullies God. But you see, superficial people, are, they bully God because they have desires, they have an agenda, they have wants and things. He's their magic genie. At one point, these same people came up with a plan to try to take Jesus by force and make him their king. Like, enough of the gospel, enough of the miracles... Come and do what we want you to do. Get a hold of him. Grab him. They wanted to carry him away back to Jerusalem, stick him on a throne, have him defeat the Romans. And Jesus, again, perceives what they're up to. He knows what's in their hearts. He knows what they're within seconds of doing and grabbing him and forcing him to become their kind of king and do these things for them. You're going to do what we want, pal. Right at that moment, he perceives, he knows what they're up to, and he quickly escapes to a nearby mountain where he spends time in prayer. We're going to look at that narrative in the Gospel of John. These people, and all superficial people, eventually cause the Lord trouble because they make these demands, they bully they put a strain on everything. And Jesus knew it, and he still did not dismiss them. Which totally shows us that it is totally possible for superficial people to spend a lot of time following Jesus around and going through the motions. Some would say, well, the, the big test to whether somebody's truly converted or not is whether they follow Jesus or not. That's not true. People follow Jesus all the time and aren't saved. The big deciding thing or the big sign to look for is the submission to him as Lord. As I said, Judas followed Jesus around for three years, had everyone believing. So you can't just say, well, they follow Jesus, they got to be real. No, 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 fakes follow Jesus all the time. I know I did it a little bit before I got saved. Got to get my wife off my back, go to church, pretend like I love Jesus. Did that for a number of years. Well, I don't know if it was a number of years, but it was for a little while. I was faking just to appease her. People 
<laughs> Just because somebody's in church doesn't mean they're a believer, man. I, I wish it were true that everyone who steps through that door just loves Jesus like crazy. Prior to leaving Jerusalem, this is just fascinating to me, prior to leaving Jerusalem, one of these superficial believers from the crowd decided to come to Jesus and pay him a visit. All right, this is interesting because one of them out there thought, okay, he's performing the miracles, I believe in him in a sense, but he was still curious, wanted to go a little further. It wasn't just about following Jesus and at a distance like some of these other people. He actually wanted to go and interact with Jesus and talk to him. He was an insanely high-ranking religious leader, and he came to Jesus at night to avoid being detected by his peers. Because let me tell you something, for the religious leaders, it wasn't popular to follow Jesus or to even talk to Jesus or interact with Jesus unless you were in a, unless you were in a group and you were there to put it on him. His name is Nicodemus. How many of you knew that Nicodemus was one of these superficial believers that just kind of transferred over out of this and went to hit up the Lord to find out more information? We read John 3 in a vacuum. We isolate it from the context. This is why we've done so much damage to verses like John 3.16 and others, so much violence to the Word of God because we divorce it from its context. The entire narrative in John 3 is basically, except for the latter part of the, ver of the chapter, is an interaction with one of these superficial believers who came at night. After Nicodemus pays Jesus, and this is how the whole thing begins in the next chapter. Now, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but I'm setting it up. After he pays Jesus a semi-condescending compliment, and that's, that's basically what he does. Well, you've got to be from God because you have this power. We believe you're a teacher. If you read the beginning of John 3, that's how it starts. So here's a superficial believer paying Jesus a compliment, but it's very condescending because Jesus isn't just a teacher. That shows that Nicodemus is not converted because he thinks Jesus is just a teacher. He pays him a semi-condescending compliment, and the Lord cuts right to the chase and begins to unpack what a truly converted person looks like. And I believe the end of John 2 and all of John 3 are written as an apologetic for true conversion. Think about it. John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, our text, it deals with superficial faith. We could call that false conversion or no conversion. John 3 deals with true conversion. So you've got the superficial in our text, and you've got the real deal in chapter 3. Now my theory is in line with the overarching themes of this gospel, which are what? We've talked about them. The deity of Jesus, the messiahship of Jesus, and true conversion, true faith. How many times does the word believe appear in John's gospel? A hundred! It is about true conversion. It is about believing in Jesus and what that doesn't look like and what it actually looks like. Now, i got to admit to you that prior to this last week of study, I did not see this section, especially John 3, in this way. I didn't think it was some kind of a random thing. I understand it's part of the gospel. It's there intentionally. I, I love the truths of it. But I didn't realize that it was tied to the end of 2 and that John's point in assembling these truths in the way that he did, led by the Holy Spirit, was to make an apologetic for true conversion, which is what he's been, he basically does through the whole book. He argues for the deity, he argues for the messiahship, he argues for true faith. I didn't know that, that these were tied together like this. And this is basically, I mean, when you don't pay close attention to the surrounding verses and chapters, you don't get these major themes. You miss this stuff. If you do not study in a more panoramic way, you can end up missing the broader theme, and in some cases, miss the true meaning of what's in front of you. And this is, as I already pointed to, what has happened with John 3.16. People have concluded that it has to do with universal atonement. 
Guess what, everyone? Look at John 3.16. Jesus came to die for everyone. They arrive at this conclusion because they study it in an isolated fashion, apart from its context and apart from the overarching theme of true conversion. In reality, it is not about universal atonement. It is about what a truly converted person looks like. A truly converted person believes in God's only begotten Son, as well as the other things that are represented in the text. Is this new for any of you? Because it was new for me. I'm the only one. No, it's, 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 it's literally, to me, when God says something to me directly, and of course you need to take these things and weigh them against what others are saying, because if you come up with something that seems too good to be true, it probably is. But I think that my theory aligns with the themes of the book. It makes total sense to me that it is structured and written in this way. So it is very, very practical. Here's superficial faith. Here's true conversion. And then he breaks down. Jesus spends some time breaking down true conversion. John brings in the example of John the Baptist again that shows the, the new attitude and new disposition of a truly converted person. Jesus must increase. I must decrease. It's all there, guys. And we're going to spend the next four or five weeks or so going over. It's going to be awesome. But that, I think that's where we're headed here. That's what we've stumbled onto. I'm really, really excited about this approach and what we will learn in the coming weeks. So I want to go ahead and begin to wrap it up. Maybe I'm getting done a little earlier today, and that's okay. Maybe not. I always say that, then I go long. I, every time I say that, it's like jinx, like I believe in jinxes. I don't even know what a jinx is. Application, let's just think practically for ourselves what we can apply. Hopefully you've applied some things already. I will just say this. There are superficial believers in churches today. Maybe there's some in here. There are Judases. There are Simons. There are Lord, Lord believers. There are John 2 types in sanctuaries singing songs and listening to sermons as I speak. Superficial faith is very prevalent today, especially in our nation. In fact, I, I think that, I don't even think it's a 50-50. I think the church is much much, the true church is much, much smaller than what we see today and the appearance of what's playing out. Like, like, like there's a remnant in the world today that represents the true church. Well, how can you say that? Churches are filled every... I just told you how I can say that. Superficial faith. Let's put it this way. There is a broad road that people are on. And the path to eternal life is a narrow little path. Like when you go on vacation and you walk that little path and you're avoiding that poison oak. You ever go to Monterey? It's everywhere. It's terrible to wake up in the middle of the night with it. I haven't done it yet, but I will. There is a broad road that leads to destruction, and many are on it, and there is a narrow path that leads to life. What that tells me is that there are a lot of lost people outside of churches and inside of churches. Superficial faith is, is, is prevalent. It is, it is pandemic. Part of it is due to the fact that, that, that men have forsaken the preaching of the gospel and they're preaching pragmatism and stuff that makes people feel good. How many of you saw me get slayed on Facebook for making a case against Joel Osteen? Apparently I'm fat, and I'm a judgmental something that I can't say in church. That guy, that guy is the poster child for superficial faith. Maybe that offends some of you. Well, I'm sorry. It's reality. The man claims to be a Christian minister, and he says a lot of really nice and pleasant things, but he does not preach the gospel. He preaches a gospel of prosperity there's no mention of sin or repentance or any of those things makes you feel good to watch him he has bad language 
Now, I don't think Joel Osteen would cuss. That would move him a couple of levels down on the totem pole of justifying himself. He's, he's, a, he's a false teacher. I mean, that's just all there is to it. You just listen to his message, and you don't need to go any farther than that. Doesn't mean he's not a nice guy. I saw a meme one time that said, Joel Osteen, smiling people to hell for 15 years. It's pretty true. If you preach Jesus loves you and stop there, you're going to hell. You better say Jesus loves you and commands that you repent and bow your knee to him and believe the gospel. You leave that out, you're sending them to hell. And that makes me mad. It makes me very, very angry. You don't do those things in the name of Jesus. Well, some would say, well, the Apostle Paul was happy that just the, the, the gospel was going out in a sense and that people were talking about Jesus. Paul says something about that in one of his letters. That's, 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 not, that's not what we're talking about here. The Apostle Paul would never commend Joel Osteen. He would put so many anathemas on him, his mansion would fall down. Curses. And I don't want to beat him up too much, just a little, but I just want you to see the poster child for superficial faith. There's a whole list of them out there. I got called fat. Immediately, I went into the mirror and I started working out. Started doing pizza lifts. Yeah. I like my fluffiness. Sneaking shirts, hiking up, showing my belly. Got to lean forward. Looks better. Got a complex now, thanks to that guy. I like what one of my old junior high students said. What are we, 12? <laughs> You're fat. Neener, neener, neener. Well, I know. Oh, Lord. It, that's today, right? It, just, just a little rant. That's today. When people can't argue and, and, and win arguments or make good arguments, they turn to, You're fat! Or they riot. Or they destroy... You know, campuses at colleges and can't even talk about things anymore. Man. Now, there's a lot of superficial. There's a lot of people preaching a superficial gospel. There's a lot of people believing that superficial gospel. They're out there. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. Churches are filled with people who have no real interest in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and absolutely no intention of repentance. That's where I draw the line. That's how people think. Many people are simply going through the motions, maintaining appearances, trying to please others, or coming to churches for other reasons and sitting through this stuff. I've never said stuff before, but I just did. There are people who are genuine. I don't, I don't want to just, just blanket it all together. There are people out there and maybe even here that are genuinely seeking the Lord, not because they have the ability or power to do that, but because He's drawing them by His grace. That, that's not who I'm referring to here. That doesn't, that, just because you're here and you don't believe doesn't mean you're, you're superficial. Maybe the Lord is drawing you by His grace. I spent many, many Sundays in church before I was saved. I believe that was the drawing and leading of God to get me to the point where I was like, hallelujah, I get it. And that was all Him. There could be somebody here. Maybe I'm describing you. That's okay. I'm so glad you're here. It doesn't mean you're superficial. Now, I'm referring to superficial, to the fakes, to those that we've seen in the Scripture today. And here's my question. If we are following Jesus, why are we doing it? If we claim to be a, a believer and I love Jesus, why? Why do you follow Jesus? Are, are we following Jesus because we are a true believer and, and we, we truly love Him? Or are we following Him for other reasons like the folks that I've mentioned in the sermon? I mean, it's a great question to ask yourself. You know, I, I said it earlier, the Scripture, it, it tells us to test ourselves. 
Why, why, do, I, why do I do what I do? Why, why do I come to church? Why, why do I lift my hands? Why, why do I do this? Why do I work? Why do I have a marriage? If, if it's not all for God's glory, then maybe there's a problem. Maybe you're superficial. Maybe you're here just to get something. People come through this door all the time seeking to get something. I got to admit, as a, as a believer for, I don't know, going on two decades now, I, there, there are times where I'm, I'm motivated by selfish desires and things. I'm not coming because I have a heart of love that's just overflowing with love and adoration for my king of kings. I'm coming because I need some help or, because, well, maybe that's a good reason, but maybe I'm coming for some selfish reason or whatever. Maybe I'm just doing it because it's what I have to do. I can't tell you, there's, there's been sermons that I've preached where well, it's, just, it's just what I have to do. It's my job today. Not because I've been so touched by the word and the ministry of the Lord this week that I love my wife, share it. Sometimes I'm just like, well, I'll just go do my duty. I think we can all, even if you're a, a committed believer, you can be superficial at times. But that's not even what, really what I'm talking about. I'm asking you, I can't see your heart. I'm asking you, why do you follow Jesus? If we are following Jesus, why are we doing it? And, and you got to know, you got to know, you got to know something that's made so clear in this text. With Jesus, nothing in our past, nothing in our present, nothing in our future is hidden from His sight. I can't see your heart. I don't know what's going on in you, but He does. The omniscient Lord sees our hearts and he knows what we believe and he knows why we do what we do. He sees it all. Not just say his omniscience can be very frightening, right? If you think about it, he knows all of your darkest, deepest secrets, the motives of your heart, everything about you. He knows all the hairs on your head. If you're bald, he knows how many you had. He knows what's going on with us. I think it's a bit frightening, but I don't think that His omniscience is, is meant to make us fearful. I think it is meant to motivate us to be faithful, to check our thoughts, to test our thoughts, to test our motives, to analyze our hearts, to make sure that we are in the true faith, that, we, that we're in submission to Him, that repentance is there and those kinds of things. For us to evaluate ourselves, how often do we actually just stop and take a look on the inside? We're so focused on looking at everything else and what Joe Osteen will or won't do. I should, probably shouldn't even waste my time with that. We're just so focused on everything else. And maybe what we need to do is focus right here and see what's going on. If we consider ourselves believers... We need to make sure that we understand what Scripture teaches about coming to Jesus. The crowds were coming to Jesus, right? We need to understand what Scripture clearly lays out and says about coming to Jesus, right? We do not come to Him at first for His blessings or for what He can give us. We do not come to Him at first for just His blessings, the tangible things that He can do or whatever or what He can give us. That, that's, that's not how we first come to Jesus. And, and that's why I get so upset with that false gospel out there because that's all it ever says is just keep coming to Him for, for this and He'll improve your season of life and He'll do this. It's all garbage. We don't come to Him at first for those reasons. We repent of our unbelief. We repent of our self-lordship. And we come to Him for mercy, for forgiveness, for cleansing. That's why we come, not what are you going to give me? We come and say, I'm going to give me to you. That's the scripture. We repent of our unbelief. We repent of our self-lordship. And we come to Him for mercy, forgiveness, and cleansing. And once... Those things have taken place. Once we have received those things by grace through faith, we can begin to seek Him for His other blessings. 
and you want to read about his blessings, they are so much more spectacular and awesome than cars and houses and health and all that. Go read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 14. The blessings of the believer are listed there, and they will blow your mind. But guess what? Some of them you got to wait for. I would say this to you. I'll end with this statement. We must come to Jesus through the cross. Because the cross is what grants us access to his throne of grace. If we don't come to Jesus through his bloody murder, you'll never get to him. You've got to acknowledge what he did here. You've got to respond in faith to what he did here. You've got to believe in what he did here. You're not going to get to him unless you come through the cross. And once you do that, once you put your faith in what he accomplished at the cross, what he achieved for you, then you can move into the blessings and asking him for certain things and, and for help and all those things. But you've got to start with the cross. Amen?